Please be seated. And as seated, turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to focus on verses 27 through 32 today. Well, um, yeah, so today we'll be back into Matthew. We've been going really since the fall, just verse by verse, section by section, through the book of Matthew, seeing the life of Christ and seeing his calling of his early disciples. And as we've come here into Matthew chapter 5, and then into 6 and 7, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus describes what it looks like to be a follower, a disciple of, of, of him. And a lot of times for him, it was in distinction from what a lot of the religious leaders around him would end up teaching. And is to show what true holiness of heart is, true holiness of life, what it means to be separated to, to God and to truly trust Christ uh, for our needs. And so as we come to Matthew 5, um, sorry in verse 27, you might notice that I preached on this passage before, and, and yet it's true, I did, and I'm going to preach on it again this week, and just partly because it's so important especially in our world today, the things that we face in terms of temptations and the way that we think and the value of marriage um, and the the place of singleness inside of our world. And so really just take time to think and to consider this passage for our own life again um, this week. So Matthew 5, uh, starting in verse 27, these are the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So this is the word of God. Would you pray together with me? Father, as we come to this passage, uh, Father, we know this is your word, your word to us today. Father, we know that as we think about our own relationships when we're here, whether we're married, whether we're single, even if we're young, Father, we know that you have something for us in this as we consider what's, what are we doing with our own heart? What's the way that we value the gifts you've given to us? And Father, how do we value the things you've given to us to the best of our ability for your glory? And so we pray, God, as we just consider this, guide our hearts, guide our thoughts, and guide me as I preach on this um, to consider um, things that we really need to consider. So I ask you for your help the help of your Holy Spirit in it, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, over, the, um, over this last week, our family had a birthday party, um, and my youngest son, Jacob, he turned three, and uh, one of the things that um, and my wife, for his birthday, she made him a birthday cake, and it was this really cool cube dice. So it was a, a, a dice. He loves little trinkets. And so, so they said, what kind of cake should we make for Jacob? And my other son, Benjamin, said, oh, he, you should make a trinket cake, like a dice. And so my wife said, yes, that's perfect. And so she did, and, and I ate way too much cake. Um, which is typical for me because I just love eating cake. I think about eating cake, but 
But I don't often think about the ingredients that go in to make a tasty cake. You can think of some of the ingredients that go in. We put flour in there, and you put eggs in there. And I, I looked up a recipe, just one online, um, you know, and they have things like baking powder or vanilla. You know, most of the time when I eat, I'm just thinking about how tasty that that is right now. But I can't get the final result unless all the ingredients are used. And if you use a bad one or you miss one, you just know that something is off. There's not much needed to be to make a cake, but if you miss one of those important ingredients, just, it's just something's not right. Well, what we want to look at today is a critical ingredient for life and relationships. Critical for successful marriages. Critical for using our day's singleness well. It's critical for us in overcoming sinful habits to please the Lord. It's something that is plainly stated in Scripture. It's a simple ingredient, but like that cake, if it's missing um, from our lives, then we see that there is problems and difficulty inside of our relationships, inside of our response to God and his word, and inside of the decisions we make. And what is that ingredient we want to talk about today? That ingredient is contentment. Contentment. And whether you see it or not yet, and I trust you will, is that contentment is behind every word that Jesus speaks in that passage we read today. He is dealing, yes, with some pretty significant sins that are there, but there's an important message of contentment which is behind his words. Let's do a quick overview of the passage. We see Jesus instructing his disciples on three important things, considering about adultery, considering about lustful intent and uh, look at lust, lust of the eyes, and also considering on the matter of divorce without a biblical justification. And so last time I preached on this, those are the things we looked at. I'm not going to go directly into those things in the same way uh, today. But one thing we also noticed when we talked about it, I want to point to it again, is that this passage deals with two of the Ten Commandments. Right, the first one is the seventh commandment, which is you shall not commit adultery. But the second commandment that it deals with is you shall not covet. That's the tenth commandment. That comes out of Exodus twenty seventeen, where we read this, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So when Jesus is talking about adultery but then into lust, he is pointing to lust being a sin of discontent and a sin of envy. It is a, that lust is a precursor to adultery. And Jesus makes the point to his disciples that it should not be any part of our lives. And so, you know, what we want to do today is just, again, not look at the thou shalt nots, right, but recognize that every one of the commandments of God also give us a positive thing that we're to look to. What's the positive side as we consider this passage? What is it that we are to do? If you look in your, in your bulletin, you'll see I printed out some of the Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, Catechism questions and answers. And one of them deals with the Tenth Commandment. What's the Tenth Commandment? It's, in essence, you shall not covet. Um, and it gives out what is required in the Tenth Commandment. And if you look in your bulletin or review it in your mind, you remember this, that, that the Tenth Commandment requires a full contentment with our own condition with a charitable frame of, of our whole soul towards our neighbor, as, 
as that are all our inward motions and affections touching him tend unto and further all that is good which is his. Or to summarize it succinctly with the children's catechism, the 10th commandment teaches us to be content with whatever God chooses to give me. So it shows us, you know, Bible goes through showing us the value of contentment. And so look back at verses 27 and 28, adultery, looking at a person with lustful intent are both forbidden by God's law. These are not only a violation of sexual purity, but both are sins of discontent. Lust strikes at discontentment. Lust is wanting something that is not ours. But more than that, lust also fails to see what we already have. It fails to see the gifts that God has already put into our lives and to use those gifts then to their fullest ability. If we just see what we have as truly being gifts of God, if we treat what we have as actual uh, gifts, it would change the way that we live. And so that's what we want to consider, how we value and treasure what God has given to us. That's because discontent leads us to sin. Not only do we see it in verses 27 and 28, but we could also jump down to verse 31, where Jesus talks on divorce. And he shows an unbiblical divorce, again, is a rejection of what's good. Verse 31, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. This was, a, this was an issue that the religious leaders were doing at this time. They were, they were concerned themselves uh, with many matters of divorce. Apparently, divorce was something that was hotly debated. If I understand it rightly, there was a broad permission to divorce, for a man to divorce his wife uh, just for uh, burning dinner or some other uh, slight offenses. And as we look, Jesus talking in verse 31, he's addressing the religious leader's emphasis, where it seemed to be on, you know, we just want to make sure that the divorce paperwork is correct. We want to make sure that everything is good and in order. And not as concerned with the way that divorce was negatively affecting people. And Jesus goes back into the way that it's negatively affecting lives, negatively affecting people. Divorce causes damage, and there's no doubt about that. It's not right to treat a relationship as an informal arrangement that can be entered into and, and dissolved for any reason. And so while there does need to be a formal process for the protection of women, children, property, uh, that there was something more important that was there. There, there was a, a union that needed to be guarded, the one that God had brought together. If you turn to Matthew chapter 19, verses 7 and 8, we see why this provision was in place. And it's a statement ultimately why divorce happens. Matthew 19, seven and eight, um, Jesus says, they, uh, this happens, they said to him, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? So again, alluding to that certificate of Matthew 5, 31. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but also from the beginning, it was not so. And what he says there at verse 8 is very important. It's, it's key to us. This divorce happens ultimately because of hardness of heart. Ultimately, that is the thing that splits people apart. It could be hardness of heart that rejects, to, rejects a spouse and abandons her for another. It could be the hardness of heart that cannot forgive is the hardness of heart that goes into sin instead of dwelling peacefully with, with, with the spouse. There's many ways that people can have a hardness of heart. It's, it's not a good thing to have a hardness of heart. There's a hardness of heart that comes when expectations are, we 
or failed to be met. Or it's a hard as an expression of discontent because it ultimately rejects that person who's in front of us. It's a, it's a dissatisfaction with what God has designed, with what he's given to us. And as a result, we abandon this gift. We have to guard against hard-heartedness. Colossians 3.19, another consideration. In the New American Standard Bible, Colossians 3.19, we have that slide there. It, it, it translates it this way. And I think it's important to see um, some of the nuance of, of the language there. It says, husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. You know, so to be embittered against another person is just to see their faults, to only see their problems, to consider that it's not worth moving forward together with this person, and to let those faults and problems sink into the heart and change the way that we interact with them. It makes us resentful and harsh and critical. Bitterness divides people. I mean, it defiles relationships. That's what Hebrews chapter 12 says. Hebrews 12, 14 and 15 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. We have to guard against bitterness. The book of Proverbs addresses the complaining spirit that wives can have towards husbands. The bitterness is seen in quarreling and complaining. Proverbs 19.13, a foolish son is a ruin to his father, and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. So it's easy to see the faults of others, and a husband or wife, and to complain about those faults. But what good does it do? The life that pleases God must be built on contentment. Contentment allows us to bloom where we are currently planted, but it also allows us to help the, per- the people around us to thrive and to do well. Discontentment doesn't help others thrive because instead of helping them move forward, discontent focuses on the negative, what they're doing wrong. And that's one of the problems of lust because it is a form of discontent. It does no good. We can only imagine the amount of time, money, energy wasted in this world in pornography. And it never once made a person better. Just strips them down, strips their partner down, strips the world down. The same thing with disappointment that leads to divorce. Many divorces happen when there are still many redeemable and good things in the relationship. Those need to be cultivated and grown, but when we choose to give up, we let the current problems rule, we bring those same problems in that next relationship. Now obviously, we should not be content in everything. We're not to be content with sin and evil. We're not to be content to remain as we are when we can see things better. We need to see the difference between coveting and this contrast to stewardship. Coveting is contrasted to stewardship. When we covet, we look at what we don't have, and, that, and we grow in discontent. But when we steward something, we look at what we have, and we, make it, we work to make it the best that it can be. If we're going to be content in our lives... That means we're going to steward our situation the best we can. It requires something important. It requires gratitude from us. It requires gratitude. If we're going to grow in contentment, we need to see that God has given us great gifts we should be thankful for. 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, first of all, we need to see that our God is always good. He's always good to us. And that we have good ways to serve God right here and right now. So let's think about contentment when we're single. There is no doubt that it is a time of temptation. 
We may dislike being alone. It is easy to be discontent. There'll be a temptation to fill that loneliness with lustful behavior. And the problem is, though, that once that behavior or that compromise somehow is over, the feeling of loneliness only increases and the guilt and the shame increases. The despair of ever finding a spouse can grow there. We need grace in those times of that failure. But discontent doesn't help that problem. If we turn over to the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 7, we see him speaking steadily of the single life. And we see the way contentment takes a place in it. What should we do instead of being discontent? We look at what we have and what we can do to make it the best we can, to steward the situation. First Corinthians 7.32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about the worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided, and the unmarried and betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, there's a lot that we can say about this, but let me boil it down. You know, a takeaway from the passage is that being single provides you with the opportunity to serve God, to serve others, and to grow deeply in Christ. Contentment and singleness means that we have an opportunity to serve others. We have an opportunity to spread ourselves out in friendship and in ministry. We have an opportunity to continue to develop our life in Christ and consider how we might even grow as marriage material. When the Apostle Paul, he devoted himself to Christ. He was single and singularly devoted to the Lord and his work. Jesus was single and and devoted to his father. Contentment does not mean that we cannot want to be married. It's okay to want to be married. Maybe you should want to be married. There's nothing wrong with that. If you look at 1 Corinthians 7, 9, read that if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than burn with passion. Maybe you should work towards it in the way you spend your free time, cultivating your own attractiveness, asking help of others. But you can be content even as you do those things because there has to be satisfaction with God that carries us through that. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. The key thing we see is delighting in the Lord. If you want God and his will to be done, you will be satisfied as his will is done. He will give you the desires your heart, which is him. Now what happens as we grow discontent in being single is that we begin to compromise. Maybe you connect with people you shouldn't connect with. You grow bitter towards the opposite sex. You start dating outside the Lord. Maybe you give up entirely and you sink into the isolating behavior like video games. Maybe you compromise your physical standards. Maybe you compromise with pornography. Contentment and singleness is to know right now that Christ is enough for you. And even if you think your situation is not ideal, contentment means knowing that Christ is sufficient. It's knowing that you don't have to be in a relationship to be happy in life. That's because Jesus gives you the purpose. Jesus gives us satisfaction. It's knowing that marriage will not make you whole or will make you, not make you full. It is knowing that you can be full of joy right now as you grow and live for God. It's in obeying his commands and walking in fellowship with him and becoming like Christ and knowing of his love and the gospel, building friendships and serving. Contentment is critical in singleness. It's also critical in marriage. One thing I've thought about this uh, for the last few years, I've thought about happiness, and I don't think it's too much to say that 
happy people are content people. Happy people are content people. And I think oftentimes we're tempted to think that uh, you know, people with joy in their lives, you know, they already have so much good that's going on. They think that with the writer of Psalm 23, their cup runs over. And, and sometimes we think they're just happy because things have worked out for them, that they have such great lives. Everything's worked out for them, and that's why they're happy. But my observation is the big reason that people are generally joyful is because they choose to be content. They just make the choice to be content. And so I thought about this a few years ago, is that I can be a happy person right now, no matter my situation, if I choose to be a content person. This is why pornography and lust, they ultimately make unhappy people, because it trains us in dissatisfaction. None of those images are real. They're acted out, they're scripted, they're airbrushed into false reality. Some people begin to think that they are normal, and it creates discontent with the actual normal. There are many men in our nation who simply cannot get married because their brains have been so deceived by the false attraction of internet pornography. They remain unhappily single, angry that women will not become the false image that their computers tell them. I mean, it's very sad if you are using pornography, uh, if you're on the computer using false forms of intimacy, you need to stop. You need to heed Christ's words to repent and, and to trust in him. It's an area you may need accountability to work through. But it's the same when we take any idealized version of what a husband or wife should be. We start to complain about the one that we have. The truth is there is only one perfect husband in the world, and that is Jesus Christ. He's the bridegroom of the church, and all, everyone else has sinned and, and will sin. And so we accept the sinner that we are with. So we, you know, there's this book I've been recent, re- reading recently. It's called Brad Wilcox. Just, it's from an author called Brad Wilcox called Get Married. He just talks about um, just views that are really critical inside of our nation and culture in order to help marriage to do well and people to have marriages which enter into marriages which are going to be genuinely engaging and, and satisfying. And, you know, he deals with a couple myths that our culture says, but one of the myths that he deals with in it is the myth of, of the soulmate. And he says this one myth of the soulmate has prevented so many people from just, first of all, entering into marriage you know, because they're just looking for that perfect person who's there. And then also creates discontent once they're there because, well, why is this person not my soulmate? Instead of seeing, you know, that, no, this is a partnership. There's something greater which is going on here, which can really lead to a great level of, of satisfaction in life if just we'd accept it for what it is. So it's something we need to think about. There's this idealized version of what marriage should be or a wife or a husband should be. And, and sometimes when we take that in, we have this soulmate view of the way it should be is, you know, just kind of breeds a discontent within us. You have to get rid of that idea and realize that, you know, it's God who fits two people together. It's two complements to, to each other. Never calls them soulmates, but he says that they, you know, in that union that they have, they become one flesh together. That's something that God does. So we get back to the main point that all of us can be joyful if we choose to be content And so it starts by recognizing your spouse is the person that God provided for you. That's what Genesis 2.18 says, right? That God brought the couple together to complement each other. It's not good the man shall be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. In Matthew 19.6, it affirms a union uh, of marriage, a union that God has brought together, where Jesus says, "They they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So after that marital union, there's no question 
um, is this the only one for me? That's because God has answered the question for you, and the answer is yes. There's only one person for you. Yet it's easy to forget that in the normal lives, normal ups and downs of marital life. We're pulled all kinds of direction. Communication becomes difficult. Conflict happens. And that's why, especially in difficult times, we need to thank God for who that person is that we're with and to know that they're God's complement to our life. We're disappointed in the spouse. Maybe you have some conflict. You can either ruminate over the ways uh, that they've failed you or you can settle down and remember the way that you really appreciate them. Maybe you need to sit down and even make a list of the qualities, what you appreciate about them, things that you wouldn't want to live without. And don't get me wrong, there's always places for growth. We don't have control over another person, but what we do have a choice over is whether we're content with what we have in our lives. We can complain about others or we can take responsibility and make things the best we can in stewarding. And that's the biblical direction. Make, the marriage, make your marriage the best it can be by taking responsibility for your own life, your own roles, your own responsibilities, the best of your ability. That creates the marriages we'd want. Tim Keller wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage. Inside of it, he's making a case for why, you know, especially when people are maybe avoiding a marriage, why they um, shouldn't be so avoidant. So he makes a good case for the goodness of marriage. He says this, all surveys tell us the number of married people who say they are very happy in their marriages is high. 61 to 62%. And there's been little decrease in this figure during the last decade. So uh, most married people are very happy. 61 to 62% says. But he goes on to say, most striking of all, long-term studies demonstrate that two-thirds of those unhappy marriages will become happy within five years if people stay married and do not get divorced. You know, that's a stewardship. That's a contentment. That's saying to ourselves, uh, this is the person I'm with. This is the person I am willing to make it the best I can. I'm not going to ask too much of it. I'm going to learn to be satisfied in God, his purposes for my life, because really only he can fill me. And then I can, as I'm filled in him, I can go and to serve, minister to this person that I'm married to. But being discontent, again, it doesn't help that other person grow. It doesn't help us enjoy them during the time that we're together. Again, we choose to be happy or not. We choose contentment or we don't. Contentment ultimately comes from our relationship with God. Our spouse was never meant to be everything for us. They're not our soulmate. Our spouse cannot ultimately make us happy. I mean, they're finite beings. They have limits. Even Adam and Eve were limited. They had to find their happiness in God. And again, they're sinners, just like we are. And so we should be surprised that they let us down at times. Should be gracious, forgiving, overlooking certain faults and addressing big ones. There's a, there's a book on marriage by Paul Tripp, and I just like the title. The title is "What Did You Expect?" So it's talking about marriage. What did you expect? I mean, literally in marriage, you know, did you expect someone to make you happy, to meet all of your needs, for, to build your self-esteem, to always be ready to serve you when you needed them? How many of those are realistic? How much do we put on a spouse that we should ultimately be found in God? Only Jesus can be our Savior. No other person can atone for our sin. No other person can complete us or make us full. Only God can do that. And too many people look for a spouse to fulfill them and find themselves disappointed because their spouse is not given, because their spouse was not given to them for that reason. At the risk of being unromantic, Marriage is a bigger calling than just the fun that we have together. 
It's against this, again, not the soulmate idea. I mean, should it contain fun, exploration, and growth? I mean, ideally, yes. But it's more than that. It's a call to serve God. It is a call to uh, uh, serve the other, to forge a future together, and to pursue the calling of God. It's a companionship together for the, the calling that God has for us. So if you turn over to Ephesians 5, I want to look at this passage here. Ephesians 5, you're going to spend a few minutes here, so... And see just the way contentment works its way out in this most wonderful passages is we see marriage's illustration of Christ in the church. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22, it's just a good reminder to us that marriage points to a bigger picture, and that's Jesus and his relationship with his church. Starting in verse 22, we read this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as the Lord for the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she might be holy and without blemish. The complementary relationship between a husband and wife shows a relationship between Christ and his church. It's a relationship of love. It's a relationship of respect. And as marriages live that way, it, it shows what the Christian life is to look like. In the, in the illustration we see here, uh, Jesus is like the husband. The church is his bride. Now, do you think Jesus complains about his spouse? Does he complain about his, the church? I mean, some of us might think that he does, but it's just not the case. He delights in his spouse. We see what he's done in verse uh, 25. He's died for his church. And we see in verse 27, he beautifies his church. He's working with the church he's whole, so she's holy and without blemish. Theology, we call this the act of justification. Jesus accepts his church and what she is right now. He's paid for her sins. They're gone. He looks at the church as perfectly righteous. The more, uh, it's more than he loves the church. This is his body. This is his bride. But he also has a plan for her to grow in beauty and in glory. He ministers the word of God to her. So she changes and grows and becomes everything that God has for her. Theology, we call that the work of sanctification, right? Jesus beautifies his church. That's a model of contentment we can follow. Jesus' church is not perfect, and, and yet he loves her. He's kind and gentle with his church. He ministers to his church uh, to make us into you know, what he's redeemed us to be. And so that's the biblical model then for husbands in marriage, to have an accepting love that ministers the hope of the gospel in such a way that a wife would grow to become what God has uh, called her to become. So we've looked at Jesus' contentment with the church. Well, what about the church's role? What does that show us about contentment for wives? Is the church discontent with Jesus, the bridegroom? I mean, no way, right? I mean, he truly is perfect. And, and in that way, the situation is a little bit different because we see that there is no perfect husband. But we see what else Jesus does in leading his church. He's set forth a gospel to believe, a great commission to fulfill, and a commands to obey. And the church sees that mission and walks in that. And it's a model for wives. Our husbands are not perfect, but as they set forth a vision for life, Especially a vision for godliness, there is a calling to respect that initiative, to, to respect those things. It's not a call to submit and sin, but a call to come alongside that mission and that vision and to help to be successful in that. 
model here, again, is seen in contentment. But this is the one God has given you to support and help in that mission. So part of contentment is stewarding those biblical roles and responsibilities that we have in marriage. Men, would you be spiritual leaders to your family? The Bible says your head to your wife, like Jesus is head to the church. It means having a vision, a desire of your life to serve God. It means you need to be headed towards something. You can bring your wife along with you as you go that way. And think about that, it affects your money and your time and your place in the church, the way you serve, the way that you pray, prioritizing the word of God so your family can, can prosper in the Lord Jesus Christ. Contentment means you accept your responsibility to love. It means your job is to provide a context for your wife to prosper in every way. It means that you need to listen and respect and value her ideas and concerns. Are you working for her good? Are you working for her joy in the Lord? Are you praying for her? Are you praying for her contributions? Are you praising her for her contributions to the house and your life? And women, you also have a place in stewarding the biblical roles and responsibilities of marriage as a helper in respecting that mission that he has. It means helping him as he pursues things would God have him pursue. It means taking those things seriously and, and honoring them. We're not supposed to have two visions in, in our marriages going different ways, but one vision with people working together towards that vision together. We've become one. Now, the implementation of how we do this is going to be unique to every, every couple, but the principles remain and they best show what leads to you know, a, a satisfaction based upon God's word. Satisfaction in marriage and in life. We know our role, we know our, work those things out. We please God. We prepare marriage for success. Excellence in marriage means you do the duties with a whole heart towards our spouse. There's more that we could say, but I want to wrap that up and just getting back to that theme of contentment and just ask, are you content? Are you content being single? Are you content in your marriage? And your discontent will show up in the decisions that you make, including the sins you're guilty of. Maybe right now, the starting point for you is to give thanks to God for what he's given to you, to make a list of the benefits that you find yourself with and to commit to living out those to the best of the ability you can. Making a list of what you're thankful for. It goes back to seeing God as good and your situation is not being by accident, but seeing that where you are now is in the plans and purposes of God to serve him the best of your ability and to glorify him. You are where you are so you can trust God, so you can learn to rely on his power, so you can give thanks for what you have, so you can move forward for his glory, not just your own ambitions. God has already proven his love for you and his son. Jesus Christ came to bring you into a relationship with God that you'd no longer be at war with God or over the parts of your life that you don't like. No, now you can have peace. Instead of discontent, you can serve, knowing the overflowing grace of God in your life. And, and maybe the thing you need to do today is be reconciled with God. I mean, if, if you're here and you are not a Christian, you may have found that uh, God is calling you one way, but you've gone in another way. And that's creating unhappiness, it's creating conflict, it's creating problems, and you know you need to come back to God. Jesus Christ made a way that you could, that you could humble yourself, come back to his blessings. But you need to see your need of him. If you'd like to have a relationship with God, if you'd like to know how you can go to heaven, talk to me about having a relationship with God. Talk to Pastor Sam, talk to Pastor Bob, talk to one of the elders, and we can help you know how you can have that relationship. Would you pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, we ask that you would teach us to be content. We ask you would teach us to show contentment in our relationships. Father, help us to see your goodness, just how good you've given to us, the blessings you've given to us. And lead us away from sin. Lead us away from all the discontent which comes to disregard your gifts. Lead us away from lust and anger and bitterness and complaining and isolation. But Father, be generous and kind. To be generous and kind in our words, the words that we use to one another. Father, to build up and not to tear down. Father, help us to imitate Jesus in his kindness, the way he builds us up. Father, to know you and to grow in godliness. Lead us in these things by your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.